Welcome to episode 48 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. And I'm James Cohn. This is the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flicks. We are recording in Mid-City, New Orleans, just outside Bayou St. John. Boop, boop. <laughs> and uh, this is going to be our final look at like the best of 2017. Uh, January is coming to a close. We can leave this chapter behind us. Ryan, it's coming into Oscar season, too, so figured we'd throw in some honorable mentions that didn't quite make the top ten. Yeah, you, me and Brittany recorded like a four-and-a-half-hour conversation that I somehow edited down to two hours for the last episode, and then we had even more honorable mentions at the end of that, and that's what we're going to be playing at the end of this episode. So you'll hear a little bit from Brittany Lombos, too. You know, it's been a couple weeks since we recorded that, and even longer since we've just been sort of generally talking about what we've been watching lately. Mm -hmm. So, what have you been watching lately? Let's see. Recently, I finally got around to watching, this is from years ago, but Dallas Buyers Club at Matthew McConaughey. Jared Leto. Jared Leto, Dying of AIDS. It, it was actually very good. Have you seen it? No, but uh, speaking of like Oscar season movies, that seems like a very like awards-minded yeah. drama. I think did he win an Oscar for that? Who or, Jared Leto? Yeah, probably. Or is he at least nominated? It's one of those movies with the like you know the extreme method acting where they they lost like a crazy amount of weight. Like it was actually really kind of scary to see like them just skin and bones. What does he play, like a drug-addicted trans woman sex worker? Well, so Matthew McConaughey plays this kind of, like, homophobic, like, cowboy or whatever that finds out he has AIDS, and he's trying to get access to these experimental drugs, but the FDA hasn't approved him yet, so he basically starts smuggling in drugs from, like, Mexico and other countries and kind of becomes this dealer for other people that have AIDS and trying to get them this, like, medicine that hasn't been approved yet that's going to, like, make them better. And then he has, like, a change of heart. And uh, it was just a really good, it was kind of, you know, Oscar Beatty yeah. a little bit. But I really enjoyed it. The other thing I watched recently that I really liked was Davion. Came out, I want to say, last year. It's kind of this, like, Terrence Malick, David Gordon Green type of thing where it's, just this kid growing up in like rural Alabama or Mississippi or somewhere, but his uh, brother recently died because he was like a gang member and he got shot. And so he's deciding if he wants to join the gang. It has those really like poetic Terrence Malicky sort of shots, and it's really just kind of a subdued like character study of him and his like inner turmoil with his brother passing away. And it was another just very good kind of quiet subdued film that i like yeah sometimes never heard of that one it was on my radar uh when it first came up i don't think it had like a wide release but it's on netflix now davion yeah okay and it's definitely worth the watch but yeah that's really the only two that stick out in recent memory what about you have you seen anything good before we move on to that there were a couple movies that i was kind of expecting to pop up on your best of 2017 list that oh, we never right. talked about yeah, I just wanted to know like why they didn't show up. Uh, it was Killing of a Sacred Deer, which I remember you liking a lot, and A Dark Song, which we did like even an episode on. Dark Song, I was a little confused as to like if it even qualified because I know it was released on like Netflix and stuff like that last year, but I didn't know if it had a wider theatrical release mm -hmm. the year before. So I, I didn't really know if it. It's in that weird distribution gray area. Yeah, it would have. Cracked my top ten, uh -huh. I think. 
but yeah, I just wasn't sure on that one. And then Killing of a Sacred Deer it was probably like number 12. Yeah. It was very close to the top 10. I think I was really high on it when I first saw it, but it was weird because his other films, like they kind of linger in your mind and you go back to him and think about him a lot. And Killing of the Sacred Deer didn't do that for me in the same way that like Dogtooth or The Lobster even did. So I still really love his films and he's one of the most exciting filmmakers, but it didn't quite break that top 10 for you're, me. You're not up at night thinking about the kid from Dunkirk eating his dad's spaghetti? I mean, there, <laughs> well, that's true. There's certain images that I think I still find interesting. Yeah. But the overall, like, kind of what does it mean and represent it just, like, didn't it, really... It's kind of um, like a vague anxiety about fatherhood that he's picking at. It's not like a clear point, you know? It's not going like, to haunt you with what he's saying about it. Yeah. It's more like just anxiousness. Yeah, that, that's the thing with, like, Dogtooth. The ideas were haunting and stuck with you but in this one it's mostly the images and i feel like the idea kind of fell to the wayside a little bit but well, still really enjoyed both of those well if we're t- tacking on like a honorable mentions episode I, I at least encourage people to go back and listen to us talk about a dark song again because i know you liked that one a lot it's a good movie and it's on yeah. netflix as well yeah i definitely think people should check that out well um i finally got my movie pass in the mail yeah, me too. I haven't used it yet, though. Well, the city was, like, frozen solid for, like, three or four days, so nobody right. went anywhere for a few days. I got my uh, pass in the mail, like, right before we got that hard freeze, and, you know, people were, like, afraid to even go to work for a good reason. Some people died on the road as well. But everything's thawed out. Since Friday, I've been to the theater three times to use it, and among those trips, I saw a couple 2018 movies, so I'm, like, already kind of moving on to the next year. Yeah. The first time I used it, I saw Mom and Dad, uh, the new Nicolas Cage movie. I want to see movie. that so bad. Uh, it's directed by the guy who did the Crank series. Which I, I love those movies. I've actually never seen those. Never, oh, you would a, love Crank, too. Yeah, they got a good reputation for like trash cinema. Yeah, you got to check those out, man. Um, I've heard Crank 2 in particular is supposed to be very fun. They're, yeah, they're both just like so hyperkinetic. I'm sure it, this is kind of the same way. Yeah, uh, this stars Nicolas Cage and Selma Blair... Uh, and they're these, like, suburban parents in one of those, like, housing developments where everything, like, all the houses look identical and everyone has these, like, you know, perfect nuclear family units for, like, the two kids and mm-hmm. the housekeeper. And, yeah, it has a very hyperactive sense of pacing, um, kind of like The Babysitter, that Vic G movie from last year. Mm-hmm. So it's got this sort of, like, absurdist cartoon feeling to it. Before you even get to the supernatural event that sort of drives its plot, you can already feel these families, like, hate each other. The parents have this, like, barely concealed hatred for their kids, and their kids are just as mean back to them in these sort of, like, subtle ways. Mm. And then it turns out there's this supernatural occurrence where all parents everywhere suddenly feel the urge to murder their own children. So do they become, like, zombies? Like, or is it more, like, they're still kind of themselves just... You know, ramped up to 11. They're still speaking English and, you know, conversing with their children and stuff. But the movie's definitely playing with the image of zombies. Like, uh, there's a couple scenes where parents swarm at the gates of, like, a high school waiting for their kids to, for the, like, three o'clock bell to ring for them to pick up their children. And it looks like a zombie horde, like, invading a fence. So they're definitely playing with that image, but the parents will still be, like, you know, reasoning with their kids and telling them what to do and, like, chastising them as if everything was normal. 
But the kids know that if they listen to what their parents are telling them, they're going to die immediately. Hmm. It's a really fun movie. It's a good satire on, like, modern family relations. Like, it's such a nasty image of modern, like, suburban family units and how... Mm -hmm. When you go through, like, a midlife crisis and you have these children who are, like, coming into their own, going into their best years and becoming their best selves, and your best self is behind you, like, how embittering that is, mm-hmm. there's a flashback pretty much right before the climax of, like, the most violent outbursts. There's a flashback to weeks before the outbreak even starts, and Nick Cage builds a billiard table in his, his mm. you know, his, like, man yeah, cave. Yeah, I've heard about this scene. And uh, his wife is, like... You're having a midlife crisis. We do not need this billiard table. You don't even like pool. Uh, and he flips out and destroys the table with a sledgehammer while singing the Hokey Pokey, which is, you know, one of those classic Nick Cage freakout scenes. But I really like that it's positioned before the breakout. It's like, okay, they were already, like, barely concealing their hatred for the, each other and their hatred for themselves. And they're having this, like, breakdown already about, like, how life is unfulfilling uh, even mm. though they have the nice job and the nice house and the two kids, they're, like, unfulfilled and, like, hate their lives. So it's a really fun satire about that. The one sort of whole thing holding me back from, like, loving it is that it's a little safe with the violence towards kids. The movie threatens children a lot and children do die, but all of the, like, actual violence of kids getting hit and, like, torn apart and stuff is, like, off screen. Mm-hmm. So, like, you'll see a parent rushing their kid or, like, maybe even, like, pulling back a bloody weapon... But you don't actually see, like, the weapon hitting them in the face or anything. Obviously, that's not going to turn everybody off. But I feel like if you're going to get nasty, like, you should show a little more of the the brutality. Well, the violence towards children has always been kind of a taboo, even in extreme films like that one. And we talk about that a lot. You know, like, we liked that movie Clown a couple years ago. That clown actually eats children on screen. (laughs) And this one kind of pulls back a little bit from that. But the overall tone is just so nasty and so, like, blackly funny that it's hard to, like faulted too much for that it's still a mean little movie yeah i want i definitely want to see that it looks like a lot of fun that's called mom and dad and it's playing some theaters but it's also on vod already so you could rent it at home just as easily as going to the movie theater on the opposite end of the spectrum from that i saw the most wholesome movie i've ever seen in my life yeah and i kind of fell in love with it uh it's called paddington 2 oh paddington yeah dude so I've been hearing about how good Paddington is for two years now, and I have avoided it because it looks awful. Like, the CG of the bear Mm -hmm. looks, I don't know, it looks like a computer-animated Charmin commercial or something. Like, it's just too... Looks like something they could have done with practical effects. It would look a lot uh, more realistic, maybe? It would be more charming, I guess. It, It just looks lazy and just not funny. And I watched the original one, which is on Netflix, finally this weekend... And it was fine. Like, I was wrong to avoid it. It was, like, a pretty decent children's movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bear, Paddington, is, you know, cute. He's very polite. Wishes the best in people. Saw the sequel in the theater yesterday, and it is fucking incredible. It's, really? like, a huge improvement on the first movie. Not only is Paddington still the sweetheart that you love, but he's also, like, in this sort of Wes Anderson, meticulously crafted visual piece where the movie itself becomes almost like a pop-up book or like a story, like a bedtime storybook, mm-hmm. or there's a little bit of 2D animation in there as well. They make these like meticulous dollhouse, the meticulous, meticulous <laughs> dollhouse uh, tableaus, uh, almost like a Wes Anderson picture where like you'll uh, sort of scan across these like tiny little compartments where everyone's got this like little oh, cool. miniature you know world set up, and the story is just so goddamn wholesome. 
the movies are this like metaphor for immigration. Like everyone instantly thinks the worst of Paddington because he's a bear from Peru invading this like uh, British suburban space. Mm-hmm. So they like sort of basically racially profile him uh, as soon as he comes in. Like oh that guy's up to no good. He needs to go back to the co- the country where he came from and leave us good Brits alone. Oh. Uh, but you know they learn to love him because he's so polite. Uh, and in the second one, he gets framed for a robbery. Uh, and goes to jail. Oh, shit. And you watch him transform the prison from this, like, Dickensian hellhole into this, like, beautiful space. Uh, CC described it as, like, live-action Animal Crossing, which is what it looked like. It was just, like, cutesy, just wholesomeness. And by the end of the movie, I cried for, like, solid five minutes, both out of grief for what was happening, so some pretty, like, heavy emotional stuff towards the end, and also just out of pure, like, happiness for seeing Paddington fulfill his mission of getting his aunt a uh, birthday present, which is all he's trying to do the whole time. (laughs) Oh, man. It's so good. And, weird enough, uh, we talked about The Shape of Water a lot in the last episode. Um, Sally Hawkins from that movie is also in Paddington. And in the first movie, Paddington floods her bathroom, which is also a pivotal scene in The Shape of Water. And in the second Paddington movie, she dives underwater in this, like, sea-green void to, like, save Paddington from the water, and it looks exactly like the climax of The Shape of Water as well. Do they take place in the same universe? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, she talks in this one. She's mute in the Guillermo del Toro movie. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess I'm bringing this up to say that I've been very stubborn for two years, like, avoiding this movie, and I just highly encourage everyone to watch the second one at the very least. The way you're describing it kind of sounds like the babe tube scenario the first one is just kind of like, you know, pleasant, whatever, and then the second one is a little darker. It's darker, it's just more successful, and it's like physical comedy. There's these like classic physical bits that feel like, you know, silent movies. There's even like a Charlie Chaplin reference built into the movie, like it's a direct nod to like a Charlie Chaplin scene from Modern Times. There's just like this like really smartly done visual pieces in this movie about the most wholesome bear that ever lived. Uh, <laughs> it's warming my heart just hearing you talk about it. Yeah, I, I feel like an asshole for being so cynical about it for so long, but I really do feel like the new one is, like, a huge improvement, and I'm not, like, I'm very late to the game to say so, because this has, like, a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes right now. It's, like, one of the highest, like, rated movies we've seen in a while. Nice. So if you want to start your 2018 off right, you have a very wholesome option. Uh, with Paddington 2 and a very, like, nasty option with Mom and Dad. But they're both very fun in their own different ways. I think we should be more optimistic about 2018. <laughs> yeah. We, we started Paddington 2. <laughs> I'll have to see that now that I got my movie pass. Yeah, I expect to see uh, a lot more stuff in the theater than I already was. Wasn't a lot of stuff, too, like that I probably wouldn't have gone to see in the theater. But with this movie pass thing, it's like, why not? Yeah. So, be seeing a lot more movies this year. It's going to be great. Yeah, like our final autopsy for the best of 2017. We're going to wrap it up today. Uh, we might come back in the summer like we usually do and talk about movies we've seen since. The website already posted our top ten of the year, which was uh, Get Out was our movie of the year between all five of us and the crew. Uh, I thought that was a pretty good summation of like the most iconic film of the year. For the podcast, our favorite movie was Mother, mm-hmm. uh, and it was not far behind on the uh, larger poll either. So those two movies... Were our biggest recommendations. And then, like we said earlier, our sort of honorable mention conversation from last time will be tacked on at the end of this episode. A few more recommendations picking at some things that kind of slipped through the cracks. Right. 
And before we get into that, we're actually going to be talking about one of your favorite movies of all time. So that should be interesting as well. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. At the hospital, they come in every morning and they give you a shot. Please, man, and, uh, don't talk then about the nurse those things. takes you to the toilet. And they uh, then you uh, go to uh, uh, work therapy where they teach you games and, and how to weave things. And uh, they give us shock treatments, which are, those are where electricity goes through your head and it's supposed to... And now it's time for our Movie of the Minute segment. Uh, this is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. And for this conversation, I actually got a chance to see one of James's all-time favorite movies uh, for the first time on the big screen at the Britannia. So I didn't get a chance to make it out there, but was it in like 4K or some new... It was the Criterion release, okay. uh, so it's probably the same one that you own on that DVD set. Yeah, uh, but it was just you know projected in like the oldest single screen theater in the city, so it's kind of like watching it back in the seventies or something. Because that, that theater doesn't change that, that much. That sounds nice. Um, what did we watch? Uh, so it is nineteen seventy four. Some a woman under the influence. I would say. I mean, I guess most people agree it is like a landmark of kind of American independent. Cinema. Uh, it's directed by John Cassavetes, and it centers around this kind of tumultuous relationship between Mabel, who's played by Gina Rollins, who is actually was married to John Cassavetes, and then her husband Nick is played by Peter Falk, who I really love. The story just kind of centers around her kind of slipping into sort of a psychotic episode, or it's made very clear that there's something wrong with her. She's mentally unstable, whatever you want to call it. She seems bipolar, but we only see her manic, really. Like, we don't see her have the uh, manic... Yeah. If she's manic-depressive, we also, we only see the manic. We don't see the depressive. Well, we sort of do, kind of, but I think you're right. It's They never have a clear diagnosis of what actually is going on with her. About halfway through the movie, they just ship her off for six months to get better... And then uh, she tries to re-enter into her old life. But there's so many things that I love about this movie and why it's stuck with me for so long. First of all, the performances, especially from Gina Rollins, I think she's fantastic. And she walks this line of being kind of funny, ridiculous, but also like really sweet. And you really sympathize with her character. And then Peter Falk... He is this like kind of asshole, alcoholic, abusive, but you still kind of, I don't want to say you like him, but you, he has like depth to his character. He's not completely a bad guy. Peter Falk is just adorable in real life. And I think that bleeds into the character. Like a lot of his, his personality and his like tics are humorous and just like cute to me. Uh, even though he's doing like monstrous shit that's like so bad for his wife in this film. Yeah. I had that same struggle when I was leaving. I was like, well, he was the worst possible thing for her and made everything about her mental health worse. But I still kind of enjoyed watching him and being in his presence. Like, Yeah, and there's a lot of kind of tender moments for his character. Like there's a scene early on where he's worked a, this really long shift. He does like construction work. And he's finally back home and he's trying to get some rest. 
but the mother-in-law has dropped the kids off and he can't really sleep so he just tells everyone to just pile in the bed even the grandmother you just see him being really like sweet to his kids and i don't know there are little moments where you get a glimpse like he is maybe a good guy at heart but he doesn't know how to handle his wife's declining mental state and he also has mental health problems as well he's just more functional like he has rage control issues to an absurd degree where like he can't go 10 seconds without yelling at someone uh, just because they're not doing exactly what he wants them to do at the moment and also as his wife gets more agitated and more set in these like repetitive grooves she has these like ticks that sort of get stuck in a loop she can't stop herself from doing it as that picks up speed it agitates his own mental health issues and the two of them just basically drive each other crazy it's mostly his fault honestly like he doesn't know how to de-escalate those scenarios even though he's the more functional one he doesn't know how to step back and like give her room to breathe and there's so many lines where he's telling her like just be yourself be normal be you how does that help anything what does that mean for her like she's obviously losing some part of her identity and just telling her to like be normal go back to how it was is not helpful but again he doesn't have the tools to really make anything better Right, that's the tragedy of the movie, is that she doesn't have any support system that knows how to deal with her health. Her family just sort of backs off and is like, oh, your husband is in control. Like, you're basically his property. He, he knows what to do with you. Uh, he obviously doesn't know what to do with her because she just makes him, like, irrationally angry uh, to the point of physical abuse. He often hits her and then says things like, look what you made me do. Uh, yeah. Just, like, classic domestic abuse bullshit. And then also the institutional end, the doctors don't know what to do with her either. Like, she goes away for six months and basically they just give her shock treatment, which doesn't do anything except for, like, punishes her and teaches her to keep her tics, like, under wraps. Like, she still has the same impulses, but she is, like, scared to let them out uh, because they'll just send her back to the hospital for more shock treatment. And the, the film is kind of cut into three, like, distinct, I guess... Acts? Acts, yeah. The first act, you basically see her interacting with her husband and her kids and you start to see the mental decline and the second act she decides to just randomly throw a party and invite the neighbor's kid and him over and it just turns into a disaster and that's when they decide to send her away and then in the third act after six months she comes back and tries to reintegrate into the family but a really kind of telling scene and just just showing nick not being able to do what's right for his wife. He decides, oh, she's coming back after six months in a mental hospital. Let's throw a big party for her to welcome her back. When that is the absolute worst possible thing he could have done. Yeah, she's like arriving to chaos. Speaking of the chaos, like, you know, I've seen this quite a few times, but watching it again recently, like their household is just so chaotic at all times. There's very few moments of just quiet and peace and in those like kind of quiet moments when they come you there's this sense of like dread like that they're sort of filling the house with all this energy and something has to constantly be going on people have to be over the kids have to be doing something as a way to like cover up this deep unsettling truth and that's why this party at the end is so critical because really what she should come back to is just like some peace and just a family 
together, not 60 people crammed in a house. But that's how Nick, like, that's the kind of life he wants or that is sort of how he thinks it would become better if there were more people to support her. And it's just the wrong way to go about it. And it's like hearts in the right place, but it's just the completely wrong thing. He like asks her or pressures her into this like domestic roles that she can't function in. Like he, he wants her to like be a normal wife to like cook, clean, take care of the kids and host all these people. Not only at that final party scene, but earlier in the movie, he just comes home with like a dozen of his coworkers and is right. like, okay, cook a spaghetti breakfast like immediately out of nowhere, no matter what mental state she's in. And she just had like a night from hell yeah. uh, that he doesn't know exactly what she was up to, but it was not good. And yeah, he expects her to fulfill these domestic roles that like a person with like normal functional mental health would be able to do, uh, not fairly, but they could. Um, and she can't because she's just not equipped to do it without these like ticks and these like explosive behaviors to rush right. to the surface. And I, I think he needs other people around. So basically he doesn't have to face this problem by himself. So that spaghetti scene is a good example of another thing I really like about this movie is like a certain gritty realism to it, almost like a hyper real where it doesn't even really feel like a movie in the sense it lacks some of the formal elements of a movie the way some of these scenes just drag on. And I think another interesting thing is like the dialogue almost feels improvised. Yeah. And I thought it was actually. And then I read recently that every line of dialogue in that movie was written. Which is crazy. Which is crazy because a lot of it feels just like... It's got like a documentary feel to it often. Yeah, yeah. It really does feel like they just put a camera and like all this is actually happening. And I think that's really remarkable when watching it, to think, like, none of this was improvised. When it feels so off-the-cuff, kind of. And is that Cassavetti's style? Because I've never seen one of his movies before, but if the vibe I got was that's kind of his, like, you know, standard yeah. mode of operation. Yeah, he write. I think he... All the movies I've seen from him, I think he's written as well, and that is sort of his style of writing, which I think is really hard to, to pull off. Uh, but that adds so much to, like, you really empathizing with these characters because they feel... Like, genuine people. I've never seen one of his directorial movies before, but I've seen him as an actor. You know, Rosemary's Baby, of course, but also in um, this movie, Mikey and Nikki. Oh, I, uh, I like that movie. Yeah, it's him that. and Peter Falk star opposite each other, and it's directed by Elaine May. And the biggest criticism of the film from a lot of people was that she was basically aping his style. Like, it felt like a John Cassavetes movie to people. And I get that, because it's, like, conversational and, you know, feels improv, even though it's not. The difference, though, with Elaine May's work in that movie and the way this one comes off to me is she filmed an insane amount of footage. Just, like, mm -hmm. more reels than she ever could have possibly needed to construct a two-hour movie. And she edited down meticulously over years, like, way past the deadline for the studio. Mm -hmm. And she got actually in trouble for stalling the film a couple times and had to steal reels of the film uh, to finish it in, in the editing room herself. Basically held it hostage from the studio until she got the cut that she wanted. I feel like this movie is much looser than that. Uh, oh, totally. The spaghetti scenes and like the arguments that go on forever, it's not meticulously edited. It's more like leaving all this breathing room for these actors to sort of spar with each other in these, like, uh, spaces. Yeah, you really get the sense that he trusted the actors to just go with it. 
I could see how some people might think like, oh, the movie drags. It's like almost like two hours and 40 minutes. Very long. It is long, but it never really felt long to me. Like, yeah, the the arguments kind of go on and the conversations meander and whatever, but it just really added to that realism of like, this is what arguments are really like. You don't just hone in on the thing and you're usually talking about five different things at once and like... It just really added to feeling like these are real people. It feels like one of those arguments you have at like 4 a.m. after you've like stayed up too late and you're not rationally thinking and you really need to go to bed. But yeah, like exactly. You can't drop the issue. Like it yeah. pushes past rational thought over and over and over again in these like blow-ups. Even though it's long, it's such a constant tense meltdown of like their domestic uh, relationship that it's always compelling. I was tense the whole time. Like, I never, like, was like, oh, this needs to wrap up. The whole time I was just, like, clawing at the seat almost. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing you did enjoy it. I didn't even yeah. ask what you overall thought of it. Um, my, like, quick take on this movie, just because I was looking for, like, a way to compare it to something I'm familiar with already, besides, like, the Elaine May piece mm-hmm. that she collaborated with Cassavetes. I felt like it was, like, a John Waters movie from hell. It has that same sort of, like, amateur... Acting, uh, sort of like loose visual style as like a John Waters feature, except that it's like terrorizing you instead of like having a campy uh, Mm -hmm. blast. And it has the same sort of dark humor as a John Waters film. Like Gina Rollins gives a fucking like mind melting performance in this movie. She's so impossibly good. But it's not that it's not funny. Like, <laughs> she has these ticks where she'll, like, make this, like, little raspberry sound and, like, stick out her thumbs like she's hitchhiking. She yeah. does it over and over again. She's like... <laughs> um, every time she's trying to insult people. And it is so fucking adorable. And I could see how even Peter Falk being frustrated with her and, like, wanting her to act quote-unquote normal, how that should drive him mad. But he also, like, loves her. Yeah, and you could see how that would be like cute to like a husband, you know, because we we don't see what their relationship was like before, you know, before they had kids, before she was going through this uh, mental illness. Yeah, she is funny, but you're never. It's never like oh, laugh at the crazy person. No, it's it's more like I got the sense that she was a genuinely naturally funny person that's now going through a mental illness and that humor still shines through in these like ticks and they're really endearing and it's not you're not laughing at her you're sort of you love her spirit in the same way that nick loves her as well well at the same time that she's making you laugh in the same moment it's not even like separate it looks like her skeleton is trying to jump out of her skin like she's just like physically uncomfortable being alive like she's just crawling all over the place there's, there's a scene where she's like just looking at her hands moving and crying. It's devastating, but it's also amusing. It's it's a really hard tone to describe, but it works. It has like a certain humanity to it. She's not just her mental illness. There's some deeper person personality that's coming through. Okay, another good example is like Peter Falk takes his kids to the beach when she's in the hospital to sort of fake normalcy and his own frustrated toddler way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he gets his kids drunk on this, like, beach trip. Yeah. That scenario is fucking 
devastatingly tragic, but watching him get his kids drunk is also fucking amusing. It's a weird mix of humor and, like, devastation. Just watching the tools of, you know, John Waters is my favorite filmmaker, hmm. so I'm used to this, like, sort of low brow, not low brow, uh, this sort of, like, lo-fi, like you said, like, birth of indie cinema style, where it's, like, truthful, gritty, it's got this hmm. kind of grindhouse grime to it. Uh, I'm used to that style, but I'm not used to it being used for such like a fucking tragically dramatic right there there's no like kind of ironic distance to it it's the same with his camera work too like there's a lot of extreme close-ups so you have this like intense realistic dialogues and then the camera sometimes would just zoom in to where the actor's face is taking up like the whole frame and it just gives you this like real like human tragic like feeling like you're seeing these people up close and personal in their lives it's a, like a personal movie too like he's shooting his wife who's going through this like hell for this character and they both got oscar nominations for it which is insane because it's not okay you're not going to nominate john waters for an oscar but like this movie has the same tools in it's in its bag and he got nominated for best director and she got nominated for best actress uh, neither, neither of them won, but just that kind of like mainstream recognition is so strange to me for a movie like so outside the norm. Okay, he's shooting his wife. Uh, the kids who visit in the middle of the film for that house party, they're Rollins and Cassavetti's real-life kids. And the, the woman that plays his mother-in-law is his yeah. mother-in-law, right? That's yeah. Gina Rollins' mom. And the house that the movie's shot in is their house where they live. Uh, so it's like an intensely personal work of art, too. Uh, right. So yeah, it's not going to have that ironic detachment. Um, and like you said earlier, like it's intensely scripted uh, because the original idea was for it to be a stage play. And Rollins was like, "I'm not going to do that. Like that character would kill me to do it over." Right and over to do over it again. every night like that. Yeah. I can imagine. So yeah, it, just watching his or capturing his wife going through this ordeal on the screen has a sort of like pain to it as well. It that never gets easier to watch. Like as it goes along, it's just like more and more intense. It's like I wanted them to feel better <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah and then at the end there's kind of this climactic moment where nick finally snaps what does he say he's like i'll kill you and those son of a bitchin kids too and you just realize he's at wit's end like he doesn't know what to do and the only way he can express it is through like extreme anger and then really at the end you don't know what's going to happen with these characters I mean, no one has the tools, like you said earlier, to like deal with this kind of mental health crisis, so it's just going to keep going on and on and on until someone dies or goes to jail, I guess, is like the uh, <laughs> the only possible outcome. I don't know. It's a, it does end on a very sad note, and you really do just want these people to like be happy, because you get all these moments throughout where you see there's like a real love. I do think that Nick and Mabel love each other deeply. Mm-hmm. But they don't know how to express that love in a way that the other person can, like, respond to. And he is, like, very bad for her. Like, nothing he does is helping her at all. Like, it only makes yeah. her own inner crisis worse on, like, a minute-to-minute basis. And at the end, you know, they, they kick out most of the party, but they leave, like, a few family members around mm-hmm. to greet her. 
he is being like openly abusive to her in front of the few family members who stick behind and she has a few cries for help where she's speaking directly to her own father and it's mm. like stand up for me dad and he just like won't do it he just like sort of defers to well that's your husband he this is his house he knows what's best yeah it's so shitty it's it's heartbreaking it's yeah. a, it's a heartbreaking film it's like i guess if you're asking me like what i felt about it i'm like hugely impressed by it but uh, this is not something you watch lightly you know like mm, no I, c- I couldn't watch this all the time, like, picking it apart, because it's just so, like, emotionally traumatic. It's emotionally devastating, yeah. is, like, how I usually describe it. And I don't want to, like, fully say that the visual stuff about it is, like, wholly amateurish. It's not entirely, like, an ugly, off-kilter visual style. Oh, no. It, it has a warm style about it, I guess you could say. Yeah, and it matches the sort of, like, blue-collar grime of the background to this, like, operatic uh, expression, too. Like, there's a lot of opera playing on the soundtrack. A little bit of Swan Lake, the ballet, Mm -hmm. plays as well. And he sort of tries to match this sort of, like, gritty, uh, shooting-from-the-hip grindhouse style with this, like, more elevated artistic expression as well. And I really like that tension a lot. Well, I think he had a lot kind of standing in his way because it was on such a small budget. If I remember correctly, I think Peter Falk actually gave him a shit ton of money to finish this film and even that like he had to hire a bunch of film students to like volunteer to do some of the production work and stuff so it that's what i'm saying it's such a landmark in the sense like it did not have a major distributor behind it or anything there wasn't a lot of money behind it and he made this like beautiful film from just like the little bits that he could get it's really really remarkable and it's hard to, like, imagine, you know, like, a Sean Baker getting able to make, like, The Florida Project and Tangerine, mm-hmm. this, like, sort of docudrama style. It's hard to imagine that getting made without this sort of movie, like, paving the way. Yeah. kids you your kids are gonna die yours too yours too hey just saying they're all gonna die and their kids will die and so on and so on and then there's gonna be one big one big tectonic shift Yosemite will blow and the western plates will shift and the oceans will rise the mountains will fall and 90% of humanity will be gone one fell swoop this is just science Okay, so collectively, Mother was our movie of the year. That was the one that all three of us had on our top ten list. Yeah. What were some honorable mentions of just stuff nobody mentioned that we had no overlap on? Uh, well, for me, there was this Casey Affleck film, A Ghost Story. Hmm. Did y'all see, anybody I see that? I did not like it. <laughs> okay, interesting. <laughs> I knew you would hate it. That, that's kind of why I wanted to bring it up. Is like I know it's not your. Your bag. It's a little malicky. It's yeah, it's malicky and super slow and just like just like the way he talks. Yeah, it's just like a lot of long shots where <laughs> nothing happens and like I get that that's not for everyone. And it, honestly, this wasn't really even in probably my top fifteen, but we didn't talk about it. Yeah, I watched it a while back and I've seen a lot of movies since then. And for some reason, some of the images in this movie. 
just him in a sheet just hanging around his old house and like <laughs> so basically like he dies there's a great scene where he's just laying on the table with the sheet over him and it's this long like two minute scene eventually he pops up and the rest of the movie he's just wearing it's like a traditional like halloween costume like oh. beetlejuice type ghost where like just, they're in like the bed sheets of the eye holes cut out so it's that kind of ghost. Yeah, and he goes back to his house to see what his ex-girlfriend's doing and to find this note that she's put in the wall. And it, she leaves, but he's stuck there, and he just kind of hangs around. And eventually the mood goes in a weird like, kind of time travel thing where he goes back in time and then ends up in the present again. But I don't. it has this sort of hypnotic quality and some really just sort of eerie images of just... Him and this sheet just sort of hanging around. It's about, like, grief and not being able to let go. And he gets, like, imprinted on this, like, physical space that over the centuries... Yeah. Like, it goes way, way back. Yeah. Interesting. It starts changing form. The house isn't even what he's fixed on. Like, once the house gets demolished, other things get erected in its place. And he's still stuck there, like, watching this space change while he's been forgotten by time. And I don't know, like... It just kind of stuck with me, and I think it's worth checking out. Like I said, I, I think some people will find it slow and kind of boring. It doesn't amount to much. Here's my hot take on this movie. <laughs> yeah, no, I want to I hear it. I was sort of conflicted myself. So, my disinterest in it. It is a very self-serious... It has a couple moments of humor, but it's mostly like this like philosophical reflection on grief and time passing and how we're ultimately not significant in like the grand scheme of the universe right uh and you get all of that thematic dump in this speech by bonnie prince billy in the middle of a house party yeah. and that speech is the one scene that everyone who loves this movie hates and it's actually the only scene where i like pricked up in my seat I was like oh i kind of like what's happening here no that was my favorite scene okay i'm glad that we both like that yeah and he explains at length like even if mozart makes a gorgeous piece of music as time in the centuries goes on and Mozart's no longer on the face of the earth, uh, he will be forgotten. Even if the music lingers, Mozart is no longer important. He, like, even if we go to another planet somehow and mm-hmm. someone hums the melody, but that's still not going to last. The universe will die. Right. So eventually all the art, all the beauty we've created will lead to nothing. Here's my sticking point. Yeah. If all of what we do and all of, like, our place on this earth is insignificant. Why make the movie? Why the fuck am I watching this slow-moving art piece? I should be watching yeah. stupid shit like the Power Rangers movie yeah. and having fun with the little time I have. No, that's a very, very on-point criticism. We've talked about a few movies where we're like, oh, I really respect this movie pushed all the way through to an extreme. Mm-hmm. But like, I feel like this movie doesn't follow through on certain things where like... I don't know, Rooney Mara sits down for this long shot where she eats an entire pie because she's so sad that her boyfriend died. And you just watch She her. doesn't even finish the fucking pie. Like, she eats, like, half of it and throws up. It's like, if I'm going to sit for three and a half minutes and watch this person eat a pie, I need her to fucking finish it before she pukes. Well, <laughs> How so big like, is the pie? It's a whole pie. It's like a, you know, like well, a cartoon pie. Puke. Oh, but you want to see her. Well, she does puke either way, but... But she at least eat the whole thing and puke up that... Yeah, I don't know. It's kind and of like, a joke, but it's like it's like, it's like fully committed in a way. Well, and all, like, with the Mexican <laughs> family and he, like, breaks a bunch of shit because he's angry. Right. And I'm just like, you're a dick. You decided. Like, it was his choice. To stick around. There's a scene early on where he could go to the other side, but he decides to stay 
to like see his girlfriend or whatever and he like takes it out on this family and freaks them the hell out and you're just like what a douchebag ghost man also like, like <laughs> the fact that the mexican family is this the uh superstitious family that like believes in ghosts and all the white people in the movie sort of ignore him i found that kind yeah. of bad optics uh, racially for the film I, I get why people like it though it, it is visually interesting it's shot in a 4-3 aspect ratio so it's almost like an old tv like almost squared right. off and yeah, it has kind of like an Instagram kind of like haze to it, like an Instagram filter. Like I said, the the images in it are what have stuck with me, and I think that's what people should check out. I don't think that the story is really all that much to write home about. And, and I do agree that the Bonnie Prince Billy scene is really what brings it all together. That's interesting to hear, because most people I know like it hate that scene, so um, I'm glad to hear that I wasn't alone. That was the only scene where someone really says anything, so... Thank you. (laughs) So So that that was one honorable mention for me. What about you, Brittany? I think Voyeur, which is a Netflix documentary, would be Mm. my honorable mention. It's about this guy that is just, like, the definition of a pervert. He's obsessed with, like, sex and everything sex, and he's just, like, this dirty old man that buys a motel in Colorado just so he can, like, watch watch people people. have sex. This is a documentary? Yeah. Wow. So he fucks with the vents and stuff to where, like, you know, some a couple will check in and he crawls. And he, like, watches them have sex from the vents. And then, like, he gets pissed off when they turn the lights off because he can't see anything. So then he'll go outside and he'll park his car in the front of their hotel and put his lights on. Weird. And then go back up so he could see. But it's a documentary? Yes. Or- Weird. So what? this guy gets older, but he's so, like, narcissistic that he's like, I want someone to know that I did this and I got away with it for so long. So he contacts this like a, a jur- this journalist, mm-hmm. and the journalist is gonna like do an article about him. So then he goes to this motel, and he's like, "Let me show you how I have this rigged up." So then he becomes complicit, and he starts watching what? with him. What? <laughs> Dude, that sounds awesome. I didn't even. I'm gonna <laughs> like of it. Yeah, I'm gonna like watch that it's, today. That it's sounds... so cre- It's really good though, and it's both of these guys, and like. You want to look at the journalist as, oh, this is the intelligent guy that, like, is going to write this article. But he's complicit and he's doing the same shit. And it kind of shows how they're both, like, they're both, like, obsessive. They're both, like, weirdly obsessed with sex. And, like, I don't know. And then they kind of start going back and forth at each other to where Mm. they have this weird friendship. And it kind of starts to... But I I wonder, too, like, I haven't seen it, but I Uh just wonder, like, you as a viewer, like, you're watching them... Watch people. people. So it's like you're the voyeur. But yeah, no, you feel like, yeah. You feel like kind of a, I feel like kind of a creep watching it. This is why I'm like, I don't know. And of course, like, I don't want to say I'll never stay at a motel or like locally owned because, but I mean, somebody could do this anywhere. Somebody could do that in a public bathroom. Somebody could do that. I mean, you never know, but it's just kind of, it's very creepy to watch and it's, He's, like, in his 80s now, the man that has this hotel, and it's not there anymore, and he basically, like, made a shit ton of lies about, like, how he sold it and all this kind of stuff. Like, he just, like, lied the whole time, but it's him and his wife, and he talks about it in front of his wife, and he, like, tries to play it off, like, oh, like, it was an experiment, 
it was a social experiment. He would like keep tally marks of like what kind of acts they would do. And he was so obsessive with like the people that he would watch. It was, it took over his life. And then his wife's just like, okay, yeah. yeah. It just, it's so <laughs> strange. But I think that might be like my favorite documentary that came out this year, oh, wow. just because it's like, I didn't know about this. And then... Yeah, I've never even heard of that. Yeah, thing. I'm definitely going to check that Isn't out. That's on Netflix. It's, it's called Netflix. Voyeur. Voyeur, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't see that. It's really good. So um, that's my honorable mention. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of weird sex stuff, uh, another Mexican <laughs> extreme horror. I uh, know we talked about We Are the Flesh a lot in our countdown. I also really liked this movie Untamed, or The Untamed. Hmm. Uh, it's another Mexican production, and it's a sci-fi horror film. The first shot you see in the movie is this asteroid floating in space, and then you immediately cut to this woman looking very sexually satisfied in this, like, barn, and this tentacle slithers from out between her legs. Uh, And then you cut to this other woman who's having very unsatisfying sex with her husband. As the story unfolds, the two of them and this third male partner-slash-victim are in these sort of unsatisfying, even abusive romantic relationships and the way that they're sort of lured out of them is by this tentacled space alien that lives in this barn nearby um in the mexican countryside Mm. and it has um hardcore tentacle sex with them in the same way that we are the flesh does not pull punches um there's this like cgi alien beast in this film that like fucks people on the camera and it is tied to this like larger difficult to pinpoint thematic exploration of like sexual uh satisfaction and the horror of like abusive relationships that are bad for you but you still feel compelled to uh be with them for the sexual aspect yeah i'm getting like uh don't think i'm gonna watch that i'm gonna i'm getting like possession (laughs) flashback uh yes it's a lot like possession Um, (laughs) which i absolutely love so I mean, if you had to, like, tie that uh, aesthetic to, like, a name, I think Lovecraftian mm-hmm. horror, where, like, your um, sexual impulses lead you to this, like, beyond reality uh, <laughs> experience. It's just talking about how we, like, push down these impulses that are, like, supposedly, like, bad for us morally, um, and what happens when you, like, push through and reach some other plane of existence, which is, like, interesting that this one and We Are the Flesh came out of the same year, and out of the same country. Even though they're not exactly similar, they, they have, like loose moral and thematic metaphors that aren't exactly pinned down, but they do put you in this really uncomfortable headspace that makes you question, like, your relation to romance and your relation to, like, existence on this planet and, like, how you feel about uh, how you're satisfied or how you're unsatisfied with, like, our social structures. Hmm. Um, And in this case, it just happens to be this, like, space alien that fucks people with his tentacles. It's, like, the uh, mechanism (laughs) to get you to that point. Uh, it's, it's called The Untamed. It's it's for rent right now, and I highly recommend it. The <laughs> oh Untamed. Yeah, it'll probably be like We're the Flesh, where like I'll watch it a year from now mm-hmm. and love it. <laughs> and probably love it. Yeah. <laughs> you, you're afraid of watching this? I don't. Yeah. I get it. it just seems <laughs> it's not so uncomfortable. It's not like the scenes are extended. It's not like you have to watch this thing fuck but them for like doing minutes. It. it does happen. Yeah. <laughs> it does happen. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's more about, you know, like an abusive relationship. People from the outside are like, why are you staying with him? Like, I don't get it. Well, it's, I have this octopus in the barn. That's why. Well, yeah, the, it's more about like the compulsion to be okay. drawn back into this thing that you know is bad for you. Right. And you can't really explain why you're drawn to it. 
It's almost like a codependency kind of thing. Like, the tentacle monster obviously is not good for them physically. <laughs> uh, but they get something out of it that they can't even explain. And they keep getting drawn back into it. I mean, I've always talk shit. Like, I'm gonna watch it. <laughs> it's called The Untamed. If, if it does pop up on, like, Netflix or Hulu or something, like, readily available, definitely take the plunge and see yeah, if you're sure. into it. Um, right now, you have to, like, make the leap and pay to rent it, which is, like, you know, three or four bucks, but people are less likely to give it a shot uh, right. for that reason. But I, I do really like that movie a lot. Okay, yeah. I'm mm. watch it. Any more honorable mentions? Uh, the only other one I had, and it's kind of tied in with the ghost story, is Personal Shopper. It was near my top ten. And the only reason I, I bring it up is because I don't think it got enough love. Just from the people I know that have seen it, no one really seems to have liked it as much as I did. And it was like, I thought a beautiful movie on pain and loss, but it's also like a creepy ghost story hmm. thriller. And it's got Kristen Stewart, and she's great in it. And um, the metaphor of her being a shopper, like buying fancy clothes for someone else. And she's kind of like a ghost. Like she's not even there. She's just in place of this other person. And the like mystery of her her brother's death and his ghost is kind of floating around. And I don't know, I saw this movie very early on this we, year. We talked about it for French Film Fest, which I guess is around March or April. Yeah. Uh, episode 29. Uh, so you and I went head to head on that one a little bit. I liked it, but you liked it more than I did. I really, really, really liked it. Yeah. So what was your take on it? Um, I thought that, I that it was a great performance uh, from Kristen Stewart. Yeah. Um, but I feel like her performances are better than the movies she's in still. Like, I think she has this really awesome, like, cool detachment uh, where, like, she's emotionally fragile, but she also doesn't portray her internal vulnerabilities on the screen. Like, she tries to have this, like, tough, cool exterior, but you can see, like, in her eyes and, like, in her, like, mm -hmm. physical tics where, like, she, like, chews on her nails and stuff. You can see her, like, cracking a little bit. And I feel like she's giving a better performance in the movie she's in. So it's kind of like that Robert Patterson. Yeah. Um, and I feel like Good Time from him is probably better than any movie she's been in yet. I think I just really like ambiguity films. And this had plenty of that. And it, I left the theater sort of in like a haze and like still kind of pondering the mystery of it. And, you know, those are the kind of films that really stick with me. And this was definitely near my my top 10 I just wanted to give it a shout out because I don't think it got enough love. Yeah, it, in a lot of horror movies, we'll try to get tension out of text message exchanges and like oh, you know, this the eeriness does that so of like. Well. Yeah, I think that's probably one of its better strengths. Is like mi milking tension out of like technology and like how cold that kind of communication can be, especially when you don't know like what anonymous number these messages mm -hmm. are coming from. The director of this also did Clouds of Sils Maria. And I feel like this is a better use of her than even that one was, even though she was really good in that film as well. The two of them are working together collaboratively towards something that I'm really going to love, but I'm not quite there yet. But I liked it a lot. I'm not saying I didn't like it. I definitely liked it more than a ghost story. <coughs> and I see why you would lump them together. Like, they're not that dissimilar in mm -hmm. tone. Well, what about you? Any more honorable mentions? Um, there's one that I would want y'all to check out because it is on Netflix. And I feel like a lot of what we talked about today was stuff that is readily available. <laughs> yeah. This one's on Netflix, especially James. I think he would like this. It's called Nocturama. Um, it's another French I, movie. I saw that. Oh. Well, I haven't seen it, but I passed through it. Yeah. Wasn't that like John Waters' favorite movie? Yeah, it was on his list for, as well. Yeah. Um, it starts off... It's bifurcated, right? So the first mm -hmm. half is this 
silent heist type movie where you watch these teens take public transit all over Paris mm -hmm. and you're not sure what they're really doing. They're going to all these like monuments and office buildings and things and doing these like sort of mysterious tasks and it feels like they're about to like rob a bank or something. Um, it turns out they are doing this like citywide terror attack where they're sending off bombs across the Whoa. city. Um, and the second half is them in a shopping mall, almost in this, like a post-apocalyptic like Day of the Dead type scenario, mm -hmm. where they're like waiting for the fallout of the sins they committed in the first half. That part's more talky. They sort of get into the like loose philosophical reasons why they did the terror attack, yeah. but they it's this really vague like teen rebellion thing where like they don't even really have a reason it's more like this general unease with like capitalism and consumer culture and stuff so they're like bucking against a system but they don't have a clear point and they end up in a mall and they're in a mall yeah <laughs> and um it's hard to stress verbally what's so striking about the picture because it is a visual gem there's just these shots of like you know the golden statue of joan of arc that's in the french quarter mm -hmm. there's an exact that's an exact copy of a statue that's in france um, there's a shot of that on fire in the film. Just like this long shot of like flames around that statue. It's such a powerful fucking image. Yeah. Or like we're in the they're in the mall, a character will walk up to a mannequin and they happen to be wearing the exact same outfit as the mannequin is. Whoa. And they pause and like kind of stew in that discomfort of like mm. seeing how empty that feeling is. Um, there's like a character with this like reflective golden mask for no particular reason. It just like looks fucking cool. <laughs> and I think part of the reason it was probably on John Waters' list, and one of the reasons I highly value it, is that it's hard to push buttons in the 2010s. Uh, you were talking about this when we were talking about We Were the Flesh earlier. Like, it's hard mm -hmm. to get shocked. This quiet heist picture about young, hot-looking teens in fashionable clothes pulling off this grand-scale terror attack, like, making terror, like, sexy and cool mm -hmm. for teenagers. Mm -hmm. That's that's a cool way to put, push buttons. Yeah, yeah that's uh, pretty subversive. And the movie doubles back on that later and, like, shows how empty and, like, useless their thing is and, like, how it brings in this, like, nihilistic shutting down of their ideology and things get very bleak, even bleaker than the bombs going off. And the movie has this, like, cool detachment emotionally from their actions even though it's like probably an act of passion the movie's like cold and distant even though it's visually gorgeous uh and i, I think it's it's a great bush button pusher it makes you very uncomfortable especially like since there are recent attacks on like london and paris that like aren't that dissimilar from what's on the screen but at the same time it's uh philosophically interesting in the way like the educators was you know that like mid-2000s german movie mm -hmm. um it's got the same kind of vibe as that it's like this like philosophical buckings against like consumer culture but the kids who are raising these points don't really have any answers to the problem uh, and, it, and it's not afraid to like show the cracks in their ideology either um, and it also has the roommate from raw is in this film as well and he dances to chief keith for about three minutes <laughs> it's a really great scene. Um, and yeah if, if you can check out like artsy movies that you didn't get to see in the theater and they were only available through netflix nocturama needs to be in that conversation as well Toronto. All right. Dude. Done. Uh, and we've been talking for hours. Uh, I think we're exhausted and done for the day. Um, <laughs> I'm excited to see what we do in our third year as a podcasting crew. But uh, it's only going to get better. Yeah, I think maybe um, next couple of episodes we might take it easy and not do um, super heady three hour art piece <laughs> discussions anymore. Um, <laughs> maybe a few more comedies coming your way in, re in, in uh, more recent months. Yeah, and uh, we'll see you all in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye.